Right? It's now back once again, if a little later than promised. Apologies for that, because I know you guys miss me, don't you? Bueller. Bueller. Okay, so quick heads up, this is the second of a two-parter, the first being Ain't No Fun in 1641. So if you haven't listened to that one, you should, just to get the context, you know, but I'm not your master, so do you like. Now, in the gap between podcasts, we've had some more messages, which is cool. One's from a dude called Paul Bonner, who's a, he's a guy with expat parents and coincidentally has the same surname as one of my old history teachers. Now, the history teacher, he had a big red face with like a, a massive white bonnet, so he called him strawberries and cream, like amongst other things. But he was sound enough, and he was a decent teacher, and he kind of helped my, like, sort of, you know, love for history. But if you forgot your homework, it all got a bit weird, because he bent you backwards over a desk and tickled you. Which sounds really creepy now, but I don't think he had that intention, though he did abruptly stop the tickling just around the same time that the VP got done for being a fullback pedo. So, positive start to this podcast today. More positive, however, is another message I got from me old mucker, Julie Dukovic, who got toured California with way back in the early 2000s. And by tour, I mean, I would drive us all somewhere, she would find a beach and tan from dusk till dawn, and then join the rest of us for a boozing session. So yeah, cracker time, happy all luck. Oh, and she writes plays now, if you want to check her out, she's a cool chick. We also got a tweet from Randall McGregor, and that's not me thickening up my accent, it is actually spelled Randall. And he listened to 10 in two days, binge listening to the podcast. I mean, I like that, that's kind of cool, isn't it? So shout out to him. And a quick social media update, Twitter, at Irrev History is at 93, and the Facebook page, Irreverent History, is at 73. And if you wanted to review us on iTunes or whatever, that would be really cool, but if you can't be bored, no sweat. But let's fire on my number 13, Where's the Sunshine in 1649. So I grab this podcast and I learn at last of Ulster's irreverent history. Okay, so in the last podcast I banged on about how Ireland and, and Ulster in particular were embroiled in like a bit of a bloody rebellion. You know, in 1641 the Catholic gentry, just a little pissed off about having some of their land taken and kind of being beholden to the new and powerful Protestants. They devised a plot to get some bargaining power. But critically and crucially, they vastly underestimated the pent-up anger and rage of their beleaguered peasantry. Many of whom went on a bit of a rampage and did quite a bit of killing. Now, we don't need to labour on that point. As listener Jackie Sheridan pointed out, eh, it was a bit gory. But you get the idea, don't you? And so would the rebels. As the rebellion set off a chain reaction that would cause events in Ireland to peak in 1649. And these still resonate in Ulster today. So if you're not ready in a seat and strapped in, then you must be a noob. As it's that time again. So let's get Kraken. Now, if I was a bit of a crazy cat and decided to rebel, I would expect one of two outcomes. Either the government falls and sparks revolution, or the rebellion is defeated, and we're punished for pretty much being stupid little upstarts. In 1641, neither happened in Ireland. Much of the island was split by religious dividing lines, with plenty of tit-for-tat killings, basically the Bulgans of the 17th century. The Protestants, initially shocked by the massacres, began to regroup, and many Scottish Presbyterians donned their capes and crossed the Irish Sea to help their brothers and sisters in the struggle for existence. Early the following year, John Pym, who had been effectively ruling Scotland since the outbreak of war in 1638, a war that ironically inspired the Irish Rebellion as we talked about last time, well he used the proclamation of Dungannon to further deride the authority of King Charles. That proclamation, a forgery as it may have been, urged the Irish to rise against Parliament and Pym used this to help create first a grand remonstrance, which pretty much outlined how much of a tit they thought the king had been, 
and then the militia ordinance and an ordinance is uh, it's a law passed without the king's consent the militia ordinance allowed for an army to be raised and controlled by parliament you can imagine how that would rattle old charlie boy he knew that his European counterparts would be watching and probably sniggering at his inability to control his own realm, exacerbated once again by the Covenders, who, by raising their own army, compounded the king's feelings of vulnerability. It was 10,000 strong and it sealed for Ulster, stating that, quote, Unless we do fully vindicate these malicious papists, these two kingdoms, both Scotland and England, cannot sleep long in security. End quote. Well, security is a relative term and the arrival of more of the tartan mass of an Ireland's shores may only have further stoked the flames of violence. Also passed was the Adventurers Act, or to give it its long title, an act for the speedy and effectual reducing of the rebels in His Majesty's Kingdom of Ireland. They were asking for money, money to put down the Irish rebellion and therefore popery, and numerous donors stepped forward. But before you clap your hands warmly at such selfless generosity, they did so only once the juicy carrot had been dangled before them. An eighth of the entire island would be ring-fenced to repay these investors. And you may ask, but just who will be giving up their land? And we shall come to that later. But I suspect you may already know the answer. Zipping back to Charles here, I mean, what was his crack? He was just a poor boy with a story seldom told. Nah, he wasn't. He was a divine writer and a suspected Catholic sympathiser. And both of these qualities were getting right up the noses of Parliament. But what led them to believe this about their king? Well, fearful of the Spanish using Ireland as a base, he tried to placate the Irish with the graces, concessions and religion in exchange for money to bolster the military presence there. But the critics called it religion for sale. His response was to send his mate, Thomas Wentworth, the Earl of Strafford, to help ease concerns, but it had the same effect as sending Ian Paisley to take a mass. Known as Black Tom Tyrant, the Irish hated him as he seized more and more of their land, and the planters thought he was a papish plotter. And the English, they hated him too, as he heavily promoted the linen industry in Ireland over England, and we all know that the money men really called the shots, don't they? Strafford was eventually recalled to London, and beheaded, merely to appease Parliament, but not before he had planted the seed in the king's head that he had, quote, an army in Ireland you may employ here to reduce this kingdom, end quote. Merely a few months after his execution, the Irish rebellion erupted, and in the words of the royalist Earl of Clarendon, quote, though Scotland blew the first trumpet, it was Ireland that drew the first blood, and if they had not at that time rebelled, and in that manner, it is very probable all the miseries which afterwards befell the king and his dominions had been prevented, end quote. But they had revolted, and Charles had to continue to deal with an increasingly independent and stoic parliament. But he was at his wit's end. He decided to take a drastic step. He turned to Ireland and to the ruling confederacy for help. Sorry, wait, what? The confederacy? Did I not mention that? Well, if you think of confederates, you probably think of the American Civil War. You know, slavery, Stonewall Jackson, or maybe Daisy Duke and her shorts, or her brothers, if that's your thing. But guess what? Ireland also had confederates too. But these guys, they were a little more astute than Boss Hogg and Sheriff Roscoe. Nah, they had a returning hero at their helm. Owen Ronell. Back after three decades of fighting for Spanish interests in the European mainland, he helped unite the Irish rebels and form the Confederation of Ireland. And they formulated such outlandish ideas as toleration for Catholics and political self-determination. I mean, the sheer cheek of it. Give them that and the next thing you know they'd be asking for a feckin' Irish language act. 
Ugh. So the island was divided. Shocker, I know. The Confederates controlled around 80% of it, including much of the middle and the west. The Protestants had much of the north and parts of the south, but crucially the more affluent areas of the east, and most notably attractive land from Dublin right up to a town called Drogheda, and you might want to remember that name. The planters and their like, they were still controlled by the king, or more directly by the king's man, the Earl of Ormond, and despite his protestations, Charles ordered him to go all Henry Kissinger and negotiate terms with the rebels. In return for agreeing to repeal anti-Catholic laws and for allowing them like a smidgen of a say in how their country was run, the Confederates would declare not just a ceasefire, but would actually help Charlie Boy with raising men and munitions. Charles liked this deal. But the most important element was that it allowed many of the Royalist troops to depart Ireland and to return to England to have his back. By late 1643, some 15,000 troops had flooded back from Ireland to help the Royalist cause. When Parliament heard of the deal, the reaction was one of absolute fury. The King was seen to have danced with the devil in the pale moonlight, to have betrayed the nation. They saw it as akin to how the Parkhead faithful felt when Mo Johnson signed for Rangers back in 1989. Yet I reckon some in Parliament would have been happy, happy that the King had made their move, slapping and clapping themselves in the back as their plans were coming to fruition, plans to get him legally removed. But maybe even they hadn't countenance that within months they would be drawn swords under what history calls the English Civil War. So, the English Civil War then. A totally independent war from the rebellions in Scotland and Ireland, as many would have you think. Or was it actually just another theatre in the War of the Three Kingdoms? Scotland had rebelled in 1638, Ireland in 1641. Now people in England had to choose sides, Charles or Parliament, Royalist or Roundhead. And if you've ever wondered why the Parliamentarians were called Roundheads, then it's actually kind of funny. It's because they're shit hair. Yeah, like really? Apparently the short crop cut was all in that year for the Parliamentarian hipsters. And the Royalists, who took two bottles into the shower, had long and quaffed hair, like that of a lady, one might say. But anyway, I'm deviating from the point here, which is that the English Civil War was actually just a third leg of a greater struggle. But out of this third leg, and no euphemism intended, emerged a man whose name and deeds would go down in infamy. Upon hearing this guy's name, some people may cheer, yay, some may feel revulsion, and others might be all, eh? But I have a different reaction, and that's because his name, for some reason in my head, is connected to one of my favourite Beatles songs. Honestly, I can't get rid of it, and every time I hear his name, I just think of it. I've no idea how it got there. Oliver Cromwell, is he a complete bastard or nah? La da da da. Okay, the last bit, it's a wee bit contrived, but his name just slots right into the Eleanor Rigby bit, doesn't it? But forget my shit rendition of the tune, it's about the name, the man, Oliver Cromwell, reviled throughout Ireland. Yet, seemingly beloved in England. Here's a quick anecdote to help illustrate the polarisation, and it's a story concerning Bertie Ahern, the former Irish Taoiseach, or Prime Minister, if you don't speak Irish. During the Good Friday Agreement talks in the late 90s, Bertie Ahern was invited to London to the offices of the new Foreign Secretary, Michael Robin Cook. And as is tradition, the British ministers, they get to choose their art from the GAC, or the Government Art Collection, which supposedly contains five times the number of works in the National Gallery. So, plenty to pick from. However, one of Cook's choices, you could say it didn't really go down too well. As Bertie was walking into the office, he clocked this kind of freshly hung portrait and realised it was Cromwell and exploded into a fury. Stormed out of the office and parked his ass curbside until, quote, that murdering bastard, end quote, had been removed. 
It was swiftly carted off. Bertie calmed down a bit. They all had some tea, and the future of Northern Ireland was once again back on the agenda. Bertie, now, he's since refuted these claims, but it matters not to me, as I like it. It's a good story, and I'm just going to go ahead and assume that it did happen, as it shows not only the different feelings towards Cromwell, he was, of course, voted the 10th greatest Britain ever, but also the sheer ignorance the English have as to just how loathed he is across the Irish Sea. To sum up so far, in Ireland, there was lots of murder, massacres, sieges, skirmishes, scorched crops and shifting asides, as people kind of flip-flop between Charles and Parliament, and even between factions within factions. On the Irish side, the old English wanted to stay loyal to Charles, but the Gaelic Irish followed the name of Owen Roe He had been training up warriors since his much trumpeted return to Ireland, and he was bolstered by an emissary of the Pope, Archbishop Giovanni Battista Renucci, who in a bid to prove his religious purity to God, arrived with arms, gunpowder and oodles of cash. Monroe, who was a Scottish general, controlled much of the north and he had grand plans to conquer the rest of Ireland and make it Presbyterian. But O'Neill was blocking his way. The no man's land between the two forces got so bad that O'Neill remarked that Ulster looked, quote, not only like a desert, but like hell, end quote. Both sides needed a victory and quick. General Monroe marched south from Antrim with his 6,000 strong Scottish army and O'Neill pounced. He attacked as they reached the river Blackwater in Benurb, South Tyrone, on the 5th of June 1646 and despite being outmanned and outgunned, O'Neill's men routed the Scots, giving the Irish their greatest ever military victory over a British force. The Pope went all out and celebrated the victory by dancing a jig, high-fiving the Cardinals and holding a mass for the dead, fully believing that it was this moment that would see Ireland restored as a truly Catholic nation once more. And maybe it could have been. The undefended North was wide open and beckoned O'Neill, but he monstered it, choosing not to push home the attack, but instead he marched south to help Renucci in Kilkenny. Despite the Pope's avid prayers, O'Neill would never be in the position again to take the North. The Confederates signed the Treaty with Charles in 1648, by which, after killing each other for years, they joined up with the Ulster Presbyterians and other Royalists? What? I assume you're thinking what I'm thinking, and that it was only eight years previous that the Protestants had been massacred, including many Ulster Scots, wasn't it? Well, it almost makes you think that maybe not so much, or maybe just that it had been a tad exaggerated across the water, and it is that version of the history that is most common. Just a thought, but put that to the side for the moment as the devil on horseback was about to arrive in Ireland. So, Cromwell, who's he then? Well, he was a tractor boy, landed gentry from East Anglia, and a Puritan. He said they've been quite moderate in his youth, but that would soon change. He was elected to the House of Commons in 1928, and he was a bit of a bane to the King's pro-parliamentarian stance. When the war that had been simmering eventually broke out in England, he was appointed a cavalry officer of a small unit of horsemen, despite having no military experience. But within just a few years, he had progressed from captain to colonel to lieutenant general and played a major role in securing the north of England for Parliament at the Battle of Marston Moor in 1644. A year later, he excelled at the Battle of Naseby, and that effectively ended the Royalist resistance in England. It also saw the first real engagement for the new model army, a creation that Cromwell had a huge hand in. They were full-time soldiers, with a professional officer corps, and recruited not just from parliamentarian strongholds, but also from men with a strong Puritan zeal. Cromwell landed in Dublin on the 15th of August 1649, 
that no real opposition as the Confederates had been rebuffed in their attempt to take the city. He made a beeline for Drogheda, bombarding the walls for two days and driving the defenders to the moment, a garrison building under command of Arthur Ashton. Cromwell gave the order that in the moment his soldiers should, quote, put all to the sword and forbade them to spare any that were in arms in the town, end quote. He then went on to massacre almost 2,000 civilians to make an example of them. It's an act against the heckles of people rising, the temperature of the room soaring. Well, depending on how tightly you hold on to your perception of history, your belief in what happened, it may be about to get much more heated in here, especially after what I'm about to say. But we'll take a quick aside, just, you know, for a crack. So I recently attended a talk about the Protestant glitterati that are the Ulster 36. It was by a man called Jason R. Burke, whose Twitter handle is at EastBelfastWW1 if you want to look him up. During that talk, Jason did something I love. He challenged the narrative. Now, the Ulster 36 are seen by many as a shining example of what an engaged and enraged Protestant community are capable of, epitomised quite rightly by their deeds at the Somme. However, Jason had the balls to not just speak about the numerous Catholics that fought within the ranks of those beloved sons of Protestant folklore, but also of how some even excelled. I'm not sure that everyone would like the evidence-based research that he was presenting, but to most in the room, and especially to me and my dad, we thought it was bucking brilliant. It's such a difficult task, as people get so attached to what they believe, that challenging those beliefs is akin to slapping their mothers, you know, repeatedly. Now I know not everyone has the time, or maybe even the inclination, to delve into the past and to question the dogma, but luckily for us, some people do, and one such guy is a man called Tom Riley, a native of Drogheda. Tom believes that, much to the, the chagrin of uh, other more established and entrenched historians, he believes that Cromwell didn't actually target civilians, and ergo that the massacres of both Drogheda and Wexford did not actually happen. Okay, take a minute, count to six days, squeeze a ball, and one that's designed to be squeezed, of course, and like Yolanda, be cool. So we can begin. Much of this next piece is influenced by Tom, because he's like me. Yes, he's like me. He feels so contrary and like me. Woohoohoo! Um, right, so the town of Drogba is a little unique in the fact that it was mainly Protestant held. That is until the Royalists took it on the 11th of July, 1649, after being in parliamentarian hands for, for the previous two very peaceful years. I.e., there were no massacres. Yet, yet these same chilled out soldiers were supposedly the ones who massacred the civilians just two months later. The only eyewitness account of these civilian deaths is a man named Thomas A. Wood, whose account is transcribed by his brother Anthony from his memories of Thomas's fireside accounts whilst drunkenly rambling. Anthony's book of events wasn't compiled until 1711 by Dr. Thomas Tanner, which is 16 years after Anthony died and 62 years after the event. It also wasn't published until 123 years after the supposed massacre. Colonel Henry Inglesby, Thomas A. Wood's commanding officer, described him as being apt at buffoonery and just the type of soldier that prominent historian Samuel Ross and Gardner suggested might make up a spoof just to impress his mates. Add to this that he was a staunch royalist, and it's not inconceivable to think he'd be happy enough to tarnish Cromwell's reputation, just for the hell of it. So what of Cromwell's own words? Upon setting his iron boot in Irish soil, he declared that his troops should not do, quote, any wrong or violence to any person, not in arms or office with the enemy, end quote. Now that could be open to interpretation, but would suggest do not kill civilians. 
Tom points to one example when he hanged three of his own soldiers for stealing chickens, which was in direct violation of his orders, so he seems quite willing to stick to his principles. There is also the barbarous wretches quote, whereby Cromwell says in a letter to Parliament after Drogheda, quote, I am persuaded this is a righteous judgment of God upon those barbarous wretches who have imbued their hands in so much innocent blood, end quote. Now many have taken the barbarous wretches to mean the civilians, but what if it means the royalists, the old English who sided with the king against the wishes of Parliament, those in charge of Drogheda at the time? This is backed up by examining his collection of 80 letters he sent from Ireland, by which he used the word Catholic or Papist a mere four times, but by contrast uses the word Royalist 120 times, again hinting at his perceived enemy. But if this is the case, then just who is trying to convince us that he means the Gaelic Irish? It seems the answer may lie with Sir George Warden and John Crouch, Royalist propagandists, that make today's fake news extravaganzas seem like an Enid Blyton novel. They even spread a scurrilous rumour which made me chuckle, one of Cromwell getting his penis shot off and how his wife may have been irked by such an event. It's kind of more red top than broadsheet, as was their MO. Also, many had suffered seeds not a decade earlier, as they were set upon by the forces of Phelan O'Neill, and you would expect that they would have been well out of the city so as not to suffer the same fate again. In addition to this, Ormond had ordered the superfluous people out of the city so as to not be a drain on the rations. The majority of those at stayed would surely have been armed and therefore legitimate targets in battle. So there are no eyewitness accounts for the carnage, barring the second or possibly third hand reports of a discredited royalist's drunken fireside ramblings. The Catholic clergy though, they have a claim of 4,000 civilian deaths, but many of them suffered at the hands of Cromwell, so they're hardly impartial either. And the reports emerge after his passing during the Restoration in 1660, when the post Cromwell hate brigades are in full swing, with everybody in the land seemingly trying to jump aboard the Charles II love train and besmirch the deeds of the man who killed his father. Now, does this mean that Cromwell was actually a peace-loving hippie, and all of his reported deeds are misreported? Uh, no, it certainly does not. All we're dealing with here is Drogheda, and by extension Wexford, another siege and supposed massacre. Now, he certainly killed lots of Irishmen in battle and subdued Ireland within about eight months. He had never set foot north. He left that to Colonel Robert Venables. And the only reason I'm telling you that is because I want a crowbar in a story that one of my workmates' dads told him as a kid. It's a story that's entirely uncorroborated, but I liked it just to see what you think. Now the village of Grey Abbey in County Down has two old churches, one up on a hill and one by the road. And while marching through the village, the Cromwellians burned the roadside church and then stomped off towards Ballywalder. The High Hill Church, overjoyed by being left alone, rang the bells and praised the Lord that they had been spared. The Cromwellians were also overjoyed, for somehow they had not noticed the hilltop church, so about turned and proceeded to reduce the bell-tolling building the ashes. Yeah, it's max a total bullshit, doesn't it? But it made me laugh, so I added it. Especially as the spoken word can so often be thought of as contemporary evidence, when really, it can be total tripe. The Cromwell went on to fight numerous battles against the Royalists, many of whom were like Protestant and English, and they had combined with the Confederate coalition that still supported the King. But he left in May 1650 after a costly battle at Colonmel, and there's actually quite a tasty beer named after this event. The native Irish and Ulster banded under a bishop, Herber McMahon, but his forces were routed, and when captured he was hanged and had his head mounted on the gates of Derry. I mean, it's not the nicest end, but again, it really astounds me that so many of the clergy seem to be ready to kick off, draw some steel, and go warring about the country. 
Cromwell was also responsible for the infamous De Heller Connaught line, whereby Catholics were to be moved west of the Shannon or put six feet under. The clergy were given 20 days to get out of Ireland or to face death, though it seems that only around 200 men were executed under Cromwell's commission, one being Philip O'Neill. Colonel Venable said, quote, It hath pleased God to deliver into your hands the ringleader in the late bloody massacres and rebellions, Sir Philip O'Neill. I'm sure God was pleased to have Venable speak for him, but he might not be so happy with the Heller Connaught, and many think this was Cromwell's way to try and destroy Catholicism, but some argue it's just what had to happen that the Catholics were victims, not of genocide, but of the King's initial policies, of the War of the Three Kingdoms, and the manner in which Parliament funded it. Remember the Adventurers Act, by which the Crown asked for investment in return for land in Ireland? Well, they had vastly underestimated how much land they would need, and the unfortunate Irish paid the price, being shunted out west and leaving their more fertile fields behind. But the Parliament that was just a transaction. Think about what Michael Corleone said. It's not personal, Sonny. It's strictly business. But whatever the reason, many Irish were relocated and those natives that owned land east of the Shannon were reduced to being in a very small minority. Yet despite fines and threats being introduced to prosecute Catholics that didn't move, vast numbers stayed, getting work on estates as new landowners needed skilled labourers. Just like in the previous plantation of Ulster, while much the land changed hands, there was not the mass evacuation as reported, with the devil always hiding in the detail. But an interesting sidebar to this is that due to the crime being so hard up, many of Cromwell's soldiers were also paid in land, and while some of the 12,000 recipients sold at a loss, many officers included put down roots and within a decade or two had taken Irish wives and had become fully immersed and integrated into the Gaelic Irish culture, even taking Gaelic names, making it entirely possible that many of the staunchly Irish anti-English hate brigade could actually be unwitting descendants of Oliver Cromwell. A man named William Petty, the army's physician general, reportedly estimated that between 1641 and 1652 almost half a million native Irish and well over 100,000 planters and English troops perished in Ireland, with another 10,000 Irishmen, women and children shipped off to the West Indies, where many Irish names are still incredibly common. How accurate these numbers are is debatable, but not by me as I don't actually know, but the figures most likely include those that died not just from war, but also from famine and the bubonic plague which swept through the island in 1652. So rest assured that Ireland was not a great place to live back then. And it kind of makes you wonder how there were even any people left to fight at the Boyne in Ockram only a few decades later. Now, Oliver Cromwell was only in Ireland for 284 days, but the ramifications of his time here are huge. He returned to England a hero and would eventually become Lord Protector, a king in all but name, even having a succession of his title to his son. He died in 1658 and was buried in an elaborate ceremony, one fit for a king, but within two years Charles II would be restored to the crown, and on the 30th of January 1661, 12 years to the very day of the execution of Charles I, Cromwell's body was exhumed and he was posthumously executed and a severed head set in a pike outside Westminster Hall. Can you imagine what that body would be like? Ugh. Worm-ridden decay, just all cloth and bone, but whatever, they felt strongly enough that they mounted a head. The rumours abound as to whether it was Cromwell's actual head or not. Around 200 years later, his sullied reputation would be revisited and revised by, amongst others, an English historian called Thomas Carlyle. He argued that Cromwell was in fact a legend, and Manning's ideas and morals were the very foundations that the British Empire had been built upon. The Irish disagreed vehemently. 
Despite not really taking an interest in him for about two centuries, they realised a dormant hatred for him, and this led to many uttering the curse of Cromwell upon you, basically saying you're a dick and they wish you ill. It still gets aired in Ireland today. London responded by putting this statue outside the Houses of Parliament, possibly in, a, in like a wincing reminder to the royal family of what can happen to overzealous monarchs. But you know who faces him from across the road in Westminster Hall? Only his main victim, in a bust of Charles I. So what's the point of all this? All the chat about the events between 1641 and 1649. But what I'm not trying to do is to irritate people and piss them off. As a challenge their long-held beliefs. Well, okay, there's a wee bit of that. But that's not exactly what it's about. It's about trying to figure out what's actually happened. To pay attention to the man behind the curtain. Who is he? And what are his motives? In Northern Ireland, we have the DUP. A political party that stemmed from the Free Presbyterian Movement. A modern representation of the Ulster Scots. And they hold real power for about half Ulster. Then there's Sinn Féin. Representing the Gaelic Irish. And they have the other half. But they hate each other. Much of this is legacy. Stories and tales of murder and repression. Seeds of mistrust sown many years ago. Yet, as we've heard of the last two podcasts, that history might actually be bullshit. Both of the massacres that we've mentioned are grounded in exaggeration and hyperbole. And I'm not saying that bad things didn't happen, but the two events that the academics say are the root of all issues just weren't as bad as history tells us. And it makes me wonder, why would people want to mislead others like that? Just what could be their reasons? I know people may be screaming at their earphones, what about what's happened since? Atrocities like Kings Miller Grey Steels. But they stem from the same mistress of history, peddled by propagandists and fueled by fear. People always say that history is written by the victors, and in many ways that's true, but the victors keep changing as generations roll by, and history gets rewritten, and the narrative changes, morality changes, people become more and more tied to the recent writings of others, rather than the facts. But the facts, they even become more blurry themselves. An example of this is the mural to Oliver Cromwell that used to reside near the Shankill Road in Belfast. It was there, as many prods saw him as an avenging angel, a bulwark to Catholicism. But as we've seen, or at least the hope we've seen, that just isn't really the case. And in fact, many of their ancestors actually joined with their Catholic neighbours to fight against them. Now, as a gesture to the peace process in Northern Ireland, this painting was removed and replaced by a sculpture denoting hope, a symbol of progression, of moving towards a more peaceful future. As from across the road, it sits under the watchful gaze of a huge mural of King Billy. Plus, there's still one of Cromwell and Thorndike Street only a few miles down the road. So let's go back, way back, to a night out a few months ago down south. I went to the Jensen of Dublin bar slash restaurant, but the music was kind of too loud to talk and the place had too many tables to dance. I walked in through the door and this guy was legit trying his crotch under the hand dryer. And you know, being a few rums deep, I laughed and a chat ensued whereby he told me about his night and how he'd been kicked out of a club for being too lit and then had pissed himself. And so there he was, one leg propped up against the wall and thrusting under the hot air. After a few minutes he noticed my accent and he kind of informed me that the locals don't like Nordies or those from the north and that I should be careful. Now his words seemed more like safety advice than threat and we got into a bit of a philosophical chat during which he continued to gyrate his hips at the hand dryer but he eventually qualified his words by saying that they really can't get over the invasions and famines and massacres etc and basically implied that I should seek out a local and apologise for all of it. Yes, all of it. Including our dear friend Cromwell for fucking Cromwell. Like I'm his chosen representative. 
He was a feckin' Anglican. He would have hated me and my jeans. Almost as much as he hated Catholicism, yet somehow I should apologise for him. That sentiment, though, it kind of encapsulates everything I love and hate about this island and its inhabitants. I love the humour, the madness, the really rich and deep veins of diverse culture. And then there's the flip side. The propaganda, the hatred, the misunderstandings, the sheer brazen lies, all of which contributed to tearing apart communities for so many years. It really is so sad. Yet I can laugh, because that's not me. I don't have that inbuilt intrinsic hatred. Don't get me wrong, I'm not a free love hippie either, in case you're wondering, but I am free of that sectarianism. As are so many these days, numbed by its kind of darkness. But even if it wasn't, I still wouldn't apologise for Cromwell, as I may as well be apologising for Paul Bloody Pot or Osama bin Bloody Laden. Right, before we go with a final statement, so to speak, wow. I'm not sure if you've been watching Derry Girls on Channel 4, or even if you like it if you have, but I think it's hilarious. It's mainly about a group of teenagers growing up in Derry in the 90s, and it makes light of so many things that went on, which is right up my street. It's on Channel 4 website if you want to check it out, though other streams are available. In one episode there's a Russian exchange student, and she's a very interesting perspective in the situation of Ulster, and she tells this to one of the main characters, a girl named Erin. I'm going to quote them here, but honestly, forgive the accents. You people like to fight each other, and to be honest, what person really understands why? Well, there's actually a political element to it, Katya, and there's a religious element. But you're not two different religions here. You're different flavours of same religion, No. Well, yes, but it's a little bit more complicated than that, Katya. To me, it's stupid. Now make it that way you will, but it struck a chord with me. And from a comedy show, pretty deep. Who knew? So I'm not sure if you noticed, but Ireland was united briefly on Saturday there. As a rugby team, a combination from the four provinces won a glorious Grand Slam, which is uh, when a team wins all the games of the Six Nations Rugby Championship. It's only our third ever, and it culminated in a fantastic victory over England. In their own backyard, called Twickenham. And it was so good to see them taking a bait in there. And yes, I am fully aware of the ironic nature of me crowing about defeating England after a full kind of podcast of saying how Cromwell wasn't that bad after all. But anyway, in the days leading up to the final showdown, a video leaked of Eddie Jones, the head coach of England, slagging off Ireland. So I dedicate this to him, from the scummy Irish. Thanks, Eddie. Anyway, here's the Irish rugby song in full glory. And guess what? It's politically neutral, the song is. Yet it still causes tensions. There's no place in some people like it, sir. Anyway, enjoy. Later. Later.